Let's pray together. Father, we pray for your help now. We pray that the Holy Spirit would indeed make us bear true witness that convinces those who are skeptical, that brings forgiveness and restoration to sinners who have failed, that causes people to bear fruit, that makes disciples so that you, the Lord of the harvest, might bring in all your sheep, catch all the fish. Lord, make us fishers of men, we pray. And we ask that you would cause our hearts to rejoice in what you've done and in the word that your spirit has, re- has inspired. Cause us, Lord, to abide in Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> First, a, a programming note. I noted this last week that uh, we are going to be in the Gospel of John uh, probably for at least two more Sundays after this one, but we'll see. And the explanation for that, sorry to have to make this kind of announcement, but the explanation for that is that I am writing a book on the theology of John that was due January 1st, you know, and it's January 15th, and so all of my time and energy is going into that, and so I've been immersed in the Gospel of John, which has left me no time to study Hebrews, but we will, Lord willing, go back. We will be back to Hebrews Uh, This morning, I would invite you to open to the Gospel of John, and today we will be looking in particular at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, but I want to start today by reading John 15, verses 26 and 27, because what John says in John 15, 26 and 27 is what is happening in the Gospel, and in a way, it's also what's happening in the final unit of the gospel, the first part of which we'll look at this morning. So John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also, Jesus speaking to his disciples, you also will bear witness because you have been with me From the beginning. So Jesus is telling them, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He's going to bear witness about me, and you are going to bear witness about me. Now, before we look this morning at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, I I want to situate where we are in this passage in the Gospel of John. And I was thinking about this, and I was going to invite you. Uh, to imagine in your mind a great cathedral, and then I'm standing here singing this morning, and I'm thinking, this room will do it. This room. So all you have to do is think about this room that we're in, and I want, what I want you to do is associate certain parts of the Gospel of John with the architectural features of this room that I'm about to point out. So this room is a chiasm. <laughs> so uh, over here we have a wall. Now, I want you to use your imagination and imagine... You know, this, this, this room down the middle has this center beam and then this arched roof on either side. Imagine one of those projecting out off of that wall, but that wall represents John 1. And what I'm about to say about the whole room can be applied to John chapter 1 in that, you know, there's this wall and that wall, and then there's this up part and up part, and it centers on the middle, right? So that, that could apply on that imaginary um, you know, 
outcropping, I don't know what you would call this architecturally, that would go out that way, but just associate that wall with John chapter 1. And then the, the ceiling over the balcony on that side is John 2 through 4. Uh, just a word about John 1. Forgive me, I can't help doing these kinds of things. I get lost in the details, and you just have to bear with me. Um, you know, John, in, in the first part of chapter 1, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14. And then the last words of John 1, he says to Nathanael, uh, Nathanael says, you are uh, the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, do you believe because I have told you that I saw you under the fig tree? He says, you'll see greater things than these. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. That happened at Bethel. And the, the word Bethel means house of God. In fact, Jacob named it Bethel, house of God, on that occasion. And Jesus is essentially telling Nathanael, I'm the fulfillment of Bethel. I'm the place where God dwells because he is God in the flesh. So the beginning, uh, the word tabernacled, dwelling place of God. The end, Bethel. And then in between, like in 19 through 29 or so, 31, something like that, you've got John the Baptist's testimony. And then on the other side, 135 through 42, you've got some more Baptist testimony. You know what happens right in the center of John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34? The Spirit comes down upon Jesus to remain upon him. It's like the fulfillment of the temple has its own Exodus 40, 1 Kings 8, filling of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing the way that John has put this gospel together. So that's, that's that wall, John chapter 1. That wall is going to be John 21. We're going to get to that in just a second. John 2 opens in Cana, and there's this series of stories. And, and the first miracle that happens in Cana in John 2, 1 through 12, 11 or 12, uh, it's, it's the turning of water to wine, and John names it the first sign. He says, like in verse 11 or 12, this the first of his signs he did, and his disciples put their faith in him. The last episode in John 4 is also at Cana, and John enumerates that one the second sign. So you go from Cana to Cana, so just... Associate in your mind John 2 through 4, and if you can see the ceiling up there, it's, it's a white ceiling until you get to these brown uh, you know, pieces of wood. So that white ceiling is John 2 through 4 from Cana to Cana. And then in John 5, we've, we've talked some about this. Just imagine uh, John 5 to 11, starting where the boards start and going up to the center beam, and that's 5 through 11. It starts in chapter 5 with the Lord Jesus um, you know, raising that man. We, we went through this on Christmas Day. He, he raises up that man who was uh, lame for 38 years. And then he starts talking about the resurrection from the dead. A time is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's like verse 26 of chapter 5. And then when you get to John 11, right before the center beam, what does he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And in between there, you've got John 10, where he says, I'm the good shepherd. John 6, where he feeds the 5,000 and acts like Moses, shepherding the people through the wilderness. And then John 9, where there's all this controversy over him healing the man born blind. And then John 7, where there's all this controversy about whether he's going to go up to the feast in Jerusalem. And then he gets to Jerusalem. There's all this dispute over him. And that center beam right there on that side is John 8. And, and John 8 is the most controversial, open conflict in Really, the whole Gospel of John. That's where the conflict happens. And near the center of that chapter, interestingly, John 8, I think it's verse 31. Yeah, 831. He says to them something that's going to be the focus in the corresponding section in John 15. He says in John 831, 
If you abide in me, in my word, you are truly my disciples. So there's this strategically placed statement about abiding in the word of Christ. And that brings us to the center beam where um, kind of on, on this side of the center beam, you have this prophecy at the end of John 11 from the high priest who says, it's better that one man should die than that the whole nation should perish. Well, that's getting at what Jesus is going to do, isn't it? And then right after that, you have in, in John 11, like verses 53 through 56, this description of what's going on at the Passover, and the Jews are trying to kill him. They're trying to arrest him. We're at the final Passover, and they're ready to arrest him. Right after that, so if, if the, this side of the center beam is, um, you know, the, the, the prophecy, better that one man should die, and there's kind of, there's kind of an, uh, a a side uh, projection down on the center beam. And if that's the statement about the Passover, the corresponding thing on the other side is the anointing in John 12, 1 through 8. And there, it's, it's amazing how this passage is constructed because right in the middle of that account in chapter 12, uh, as, as Mary has anointed him, it says at the end of verse 3, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that on the, Holy of, on, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, he was to take incense and put it on the altar, and the smoke and the fragrance would fill the house. So it's almost like there's this overtone uh, of this high priestly, holy of holy kind of anointing that's happening when Mary anoints the Lord Jesus. And then after that, so it's kind of this side, the, other, the opposite side of that center beam, is the triumphal entry. Jesus enters into Jerusalem deliberately, on purpose, enacting Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. Your king comes to you humble and mounted on a donkey. And, and then right after that, the Greeks come to him. They want to see Jesus. And you remember what he, what he says. The hour has come. John 12, like verse 22. Uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's, that's announced. And, and this... this this side of the roof, the wood part of the roof, is going to be John 12 through 17. From the hour has come to the end of chapter 17, where 17.1, as we looked at last week, he's also praying, Father, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so you've got that on this, this resurrection, prayer about resurrection glory in John 12 and 17. You've got Jesus washing his disciples' feet, shepherding them in a way in John 13. And then he shepherds them by his teaching in John 16. These are corresponding chapters. And then they're going to have trouble in the world in John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. And then you're going to have trouble from persecutors at the end of John 15. If they hated me, they're going to hate you also. Putting the center beam, 15, 1 through 15, abide in, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in my word, and my word, or if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. I would suggest to you that that in John 15 is this corresponding center beam to that chapter 8, similar statement in 831. And that brings us uh, to that corresponding white section of ceiling over there that I would suggest stretches from 18.1 through 18.8, I'm sorry, 2018. And just like this one went from Cana to Cana, that one goes from garden to garden. In 18.1, he's in a garden where Judas comes and finds him with the cohort of soldiers. They arrest him. They flog him. They condemn him. They crucify him. 
And then what happens? They bury him in a garden. And it's in that garden where he's buried that uh, John and Peter come running to him, which interestingly, at the beginning, right after he's taken away, after he's arrested in 18, um, John and Peter follow, and John is able to enter the courtyard of the high priest because he's known to the high priest. Peter's waiting outside. He goes out and speaks to the girl at the door and gets Peter in. Well, the last section of that part is going to be like 20, 11 through 18 or so, 12 through 18, where he appears to Mary in the garden. Right before that, Mary has come and found John and Peter and told them, the tomb is empty. And they go running to the tomb. And John gets there first. And he looks in, but he doesn't go in. And then Peter gets there and he goes on in. And then John goes in. So it's very similar, you know, John and Peter kind of following after Jesus in the second and second to last episodes in that, in that part, John uh, 18, 1 through 20, 18. And then it, on this wall over here, John 20, 20 19 through the end of the gospel. Uh, on, on that wall, which let me, let me just back up here. I, I've got to say one more thing here. Over there, we had that outcropping, you know, that was shaped just like this center uh, room. And in the, if you could, if you could put a sort of um, outcropping on the outcropping that's like an awning to walk into, that would be John 1, 1 through 18, which is also chiastically structured. And at the center of John 1, 1 through 18 is, um, he came to that which was his own and his, and his own did not receive him. But to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And in a way, that's what's going on in 1153 through 56 and 12, 1 through 8. 1153 through 56, the Jews are rejecting him. They want to arrest him and kill him. And then 12, 1 to 8, Mary's anointing him. The others, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they've thrown a banquet for him. They've clearly received him. So the rejection and reception of Jesus is central to 1, 1 through 18. And then it's in a way, central to the whole gospel. And then it's also at the end. Because at the end, what you've got is Judas clearly rejecting, John and Peter clearly receiving. And then also, um, in, in this final section, I want to suggest to you that here in John 20, verses 19 through 23, as Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to his disciples, this is going to be answered by the final two statements of the gospel, uh, the final two verses, 21, 24, and 25. I'm just going to read these to us now. John writes, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And I would suggest to you that John has structured the gospel to communicate that this is spirit-inspired, spirit-led testimony. Because of the way it, it matches 20, 19 through 23, where Jesus is going to breathe on his disciples and say, receive the Holy Spirit. And we're meant to interpret that in light of passages like 16, 12 through 15, where Jesus says things like, when the Spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth. So John is testifying to the truth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will testify. And here John is, testifying, just as Jesus said he would. And then look at that last statement of John 21. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself 
could not contain the books that would be written. And I just want to ask some questions here. If this were a merely human life, would that statement be true? Would the world itself not contain the books that would be written if this were a merely human account? And, and then if, if, you, if you're start, starting to suspect, well, I think we could probably get, you know, a comprehensive account of a, a merely human life within the confines of the whole world, if you're thinking like that, then what you do is you step back and think about John 21, 25 in light of things like John 1, 1 to 18. And in John 1, 1 through 4, you know, you read things like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in, in the beginning with God, and through him all things were made, and without him was not anything that made that was made. And I would suggest that, in a way, John is saying at the end, in 21-25, what he said at the beginning, when he said that everything was made through Jesus, when he said that Jesus, the Word, was God. So, uh, the, the, the giving of the Spirit in 2019 through 23, I'm suggesting, links up with John's testimony to Jesus in 21, 24, and 25. And then this next, these next sections that I, I want to suggest correspond to one another are just fascinating because right after the giving of the Spirit, you have this account of Thomas in chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. And I want to I read through this account with you and, and think with you about some of the things that are stated here. So let's just start reading in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. And, and they're referring back to uh, what has happened in 20, 11 through 18, where Mary saw him in the garden, and then 20, 19 through 23, where he appears to them, risen from the dead. And, and now somebody that wasn't there is hearing, we've seen him, he's alive. And I would just invite you to try to put yourself in their, in their place. All these long years of expectation and waiting, and, and fully aware that generation upon generation has longed for the coming of the Messiah. And then this guy comes on the scene, and he starts doing these things that, that even Nicodemus is willing to say, nobody can do this unless God is with him. Turning water to wine, giving sight to people that are born blind, raising Lazarus from the dead, teaching like nobody's ever taught. And, and their hopes, I mean, we read Peter's confession. Their hopes are clearly just unlimited. They, this is the Messiah. You are the Christ. And then they see him arrested. And then they see him shamed, humiliated, beaten, and slain. And as high as their hopes had, had been, they were surely correspondingly crushed. I mean, smoking ruin of hopes. And then they see him alive, standing before them, holding out his hands and feet. Look, look, at, look back up at chapter 20, verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. It, it, he's clearly human, and, and you can see where his body was damaged. 
when he was crucified. And Thomas is having none of it, which is a very important point for us because it shows us that these people were not just uncritical thinkers willing to accept whatever anybody told them. Tommy, Thomas, Tommy, Thomas is clearly willing to think critically about the claims that are being made. The other night I was keeping the scorebook at the Highlands Latin School game and the lady for the opposing team um, was telling me that she had grown up at a liberal Presbyterian church here in town and then she had converted to Judaism. And I said to her, so you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And she said, no, I don't. And I just started to ask her questions. How do you explain what happened to the disciples? You know, they go from fleeing because they're, the Romans arrest Jesus and they all flee. And because they're trying to avoid Roman punishment, evidently. And they go from that to then claiming that he's raised from the dead and not fearing Roman punishment and openly proclaiming that he's raised from the dead. And then many of them suffered horribly and were punished severely. And, you know, I kind of go through this argument for the resurrection. And she says, it's a conundrum, isn't it? And she goes, it totally goes against their interests, doesn't it? I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Thomas, look, look, at, look at what the text says. Verse, verse 25 there, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He's having none of this business. You are not going to convince me by words alone that he is raised from the dead, Thomas says. So, you know, if you had tried out some of this spiritually raised on Thomas. You know, some people say this. In fact, I once heard of a, a, a seminary student in town who was going to a church very near this liberal Presbyterian church uh, down in the Highlands, and he, and he went there and he started going to Sunday school, and um, they start having this discussion in Sunday school about this passage. And all the people in this liberal Baptist church were saying, oh, it's not a bodily resurrection, it's a spiritual resurrection. Is that going to work on Thomas? Is Thomas going to say, oh yeah, spiritual resurrection, let me go get myself martyred for that? Look at what he says there. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. We keep reading, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, I just want to observe briefly, there's, there's supernatural, divine ability that the Lord Jesus has. He, he doesn't have to pick the lock. He doesn't, have, he doesn't have a wand that he says aloha mora with, you know. He enters that room, although the doors were locked. And, and then he said, in verse 27 to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Touch me. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. The resurrected Christ has power to convince skeptics. The resurrected Christ has power to overcome the objections of critical thinkers. And I submit to you, that, that the most satisfying explanation 
not only for the, resur- the claims that Jesus was raised from the dead, not only for the idea of the resurrection, but the most satisfying explanation for all of life, for where the world came from, for what we are as human beings, for why we have things like music, for why we have things like marriage, all of it. The most satisfying explanation for all of life is this one, the Christian explanation. Um, this, this account goes, oh, let me, let me, I've got to read the next verse in, in light of the things we've been talking about. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? What does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like something you saw over on this wall? Do you believe because I said to you? Have you believed because you have seen me? You will see greater things than these. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Uh, those balancing statements in 150 and 51 and 2029 are there on purpose. Don't let anybody tell you that, that this gospel is a hodgepodge. Don't believe people like Rudolf Bultmann, who said it was all out of order, and then he tried to put it in the order he thought it ought to go in. Just reject what those guys say and stick with the text. Now, this passage with Thomas the skeptic, I want to suggest to you, stands across from chapter 21 verses 15 through 23, where we have Peter, the failure. And, and I'm not going to go through the passage like I did with the passage on Thomas. I just want to make some comments on it because I trust you know it pretty well. You think about Peter and you think about how our world, particularly our culture now, would respond to somebody like Peter. Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. John 6, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 13, I will lay down my life for you. And then you get to John 18, 19. Aren't you one of his disciples? No, not me. Uh Uh-uh, not me. Three times. Three times. And our culture would say, Peter goes in the garbage. We are done with Peter. That's what our culture would say. And that's not what Jesus does. Jesus totally redefines this man's identity. He does not, he says to him, your failure, your denial is not who you are. Look at, look at, uh, I mean, I can't resist looking at the text. Look at 2115. When he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Not, you know, every time in the gospel of John, when you read about Judas, every time there's the tagline. Who betrayed him? Not, it's not here, Simon, who betrayed him? Nope. Simon, who denied him? Nope, not that. Simon, son of John. You know where the other reference to Simon, son of John is in the Gospel of John? Well, this one's over on that wall. Where do you think the other one is? It's over on that wall. It's in John 1. When Jesus first meets him, he says, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Peter. And then... You know, there, I, there's a lot of questions, I think. There's some, there's some enigma about what Jesus is getting at when he says to Peter, do you love me more than these? What does he mean? Does he mean, do you love me more than they do, these other disciples? Does he mean, do you love me more than these fish that you've just caught? Does he mean, uh, do, you, do you love me more than you love these other disciples who are present? I, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's entirely clear. I, I don't think he means, do you love me more than they do, because... You know, he sort of blew it just recently, so I don't think he would be. But here's the point. 
He's allowing Simon to be redefined as someone who loves Jesus, someone who is charged to feed the sheep of Jesus. That's what Jesus does for Simon in this occasion. So the risen Christ has power to convince skeptics and to forgive sinners, to forgive failures, people who mean to do better but blow it when the moment of trial comes. People who, who want to be better than they are. And Hebrews 5, because they are ignorant and wayward and beset with weakness, they don't do better. And Jesus is able to forgive and restore and, if I can put it this way, re-identify such people. And that puts um, the end of John 20, verses 30 and 31, right next to the fishing trip, 21, 1 through 14. And I just want to say a word about each of these. Look, look with me. At, we'll go ahead and read 20, 30, and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Don't let anybody tell you that John's purpose is not evangelistic. He's just telling you right out. I'm trying to convince you. I want you to believe, and I want you to believe and have life in the name of Jesus. That's what John is saying. Evangelism, that's what this is about. And then I think that the catch of fish in 21, 1 through 14 functions like the other miracles in the Gospel of John. So, you know, John 2, he's at a wedding on the third day, and he's got these stone water pots that are used for Jewish purification, and he draws out the best wine from the water in those water jars. Well, what does that signify? It signifies that Jesus is bringing the new covenant out of the old. It signifies that the best is coming out of, out of uh, what, was, what was sufficient in, for the time in which it was appointed. But that new wine is not the new covenant, is it? And then um, he, he uh, heals that, that um, lame man at the pool of Bethesda. We talked about this on Christmas Day. And he, it, we talked about how he's restored this man to full health. But it's not the resurrection from the dead, is it? And then he provides um, that food to those people in John 6. But he tells them, you know, they, they come back the next day, and he says, you need to work for the food that does not perish. So the food that he gave them wasn't the food that leads to eternal life, was it? And then uh, we could say the same thing about the, the healing of the man born blind and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is going to die again. So he raised him from the dead. But it wasn't the resurrection, was it? Now, if we, if we put John 21, the catch of fish, in that context, I think what we've got essentially is we've got these guys that are being fishers. But it's not the, it's not the haul of fish that it's going to be, is it? That haul of fish that it's... The haul of fish in John 21 points to the metaphorical haul of fish that we're going to read about in Acts. When 3,000 convert on the day of Pentecost. And then... It just, the church just grows and grows and grows as, as they harvest people in the best way. And that brings us back to John 20. And I want to look with you this morning in the time that we have left at what happens here in John 20, verses 19 through 23. So verse 19 on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, 
the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And let's just reflect on this for a moment. These guys are seriously terrified that the Jews who came for Jesus might now come for them. Jesus has been raised from the dead. They've seen the empty tomb, John and Peter have. Mary has seen the risen Christ. He is raised from the dead. Everything is altered now. And we know from the way this plays out, the Jews pose no threat to them whatsoever. In light of what Christ has done, their fear is altogether irrelevant. And I would suggest that in so many cases in our lives, the things that we fear are just as irrelevant. The doors being shut from fear locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, in the middle of verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now drop your eyes down to verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. He comes and he speaks peace before and after the central statement of the chapter, or, or this little section. He comes and speaks peace, and he can speak peace to them because of what he has done. It's because he has been crucified and raised from the dead that they now have peace with God. That should sound like Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ himself says, peace be with you. And then look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He gives them evidence. He, he, has, he has entered the room supernaturally in his divine power as the second person of the Godhead. And he shows them his hands and side as an incarnate, word-become-flesh human being. And then I think the, the second half of John 20, verse 20, may be the understatement of the whole Bible. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I mean, can you imagine? You thought he was the Christ, you and then you saw him crucified. You think he's dead and gone. You think it's all over and hopeless. And then here, here he is raised from the dead before you. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I'd say, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. And really, he's been saying this kind of thing all through the Gospel of John. As I have served you, so you must serve one another. If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, so also you must wash one another's feet. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. If anyone loves me, he must follow me. I came that they might have joy, that my joy might be in them, and that their joy might be full. Jesus came, and he did his work so that his followers would serve as he served, love as he loved, 
die as he died, that we might live as he lives. He sends the disciples as he was sent. Think about what I said earlier about John 1. The Spirit comes down upon them, down upon Jesus, John 1, 29 through 34. The Baptist says, I would not have known who it was, except he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, he it is who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That happens in John 1, 29 through 34. And now over here, John 20, 19 through 23, Jesus is going to say to them, verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the temple, and now he's constituting his disciples as the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where God by his presence is God, God by his spirit is present in the world. And, and as the place where God is present, we also, the church, are the place where forgiveness for sins can be found by means of the gospel. And if a, if a local church says to somebody, a local church that preaches the gospel, believes Jesus, says to somebody, we think your sins are forgiven. We think you're born again. Their sins are forgiven. If we say to somebody... We think you're an unbeliever. We don't think your sins are forgiven. That's the way it is. Not because of us, but because of the gospel. And because of, look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So Jesus is constituting his disciples as the temple of the Holy Spirit and imparting to them the presence of God and the ministry of forgiveness which I think implies that by the Spirit, we're to bear witness, 2019 through 23, 21, 24, and 25, so that by the Spirit, as we bear witness, we convince skeptics like Thomas, and we bring forgiveness and restoration to failures like Peter, so that as we bear witness, the end of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we, we do this so that people might believe there's a great catch of fish, 21, 1 through 15. So just to think briefly about application of all this, this really gets at who we are and what we do. Who are you? You personally, as an individual believer in Jesus, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. There are individual statements, like 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Um, don't you know that you yourselves, and, and those are singulars, are indwelt in by the Holy Spirit. And so don't take your body and join it to a prostitute. It's clearly speaking to an individual believer, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And we corporately, as a congregation are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's who we are. So what we do, we have the Spirit bearing witness about Jesus, John 15, 26, and we will bear witness, John 15, 27. Bear witness. Be what you are. You are, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, so minister the presence of God and minister the truth that convinces skeptics and that brings restoration and forgiveness to failures. That's who we are. That's what we do. Reject irrelevant fears. Recognize irrelevant fears. 
I mean, if you know that Jesus is raised from the dead, I would hope that you would begin to think something like, lock the doors for the Jews. I'm not worried about the Jews. Christ has been raised from the dead. Let them come. Let them come. We'll show them the evidence of the resurrection. Maybe they'll get converted. Let them come. And I hope that you'll experience the risen Christ saying, peace be with you. And, and in, the, in the face of all the things that trouble you, you know, Jesus said in John 14, 27, he says, uh, the same thing he said in 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then right after that, he says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Take hold of this peace that Christ has given and rest in it. Believe that all of the expectations have been fulfilled and hope for the resurrection. And then, you know, the, in, this, in this passage, the sent one, Jesus, sent of the Father, says, as the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. The sent one becomes the sender, so we're sent. We're sent with a mission, and we're to go. Verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You know, if you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus, this word receive is really important for you. Because in, in John 1, uh, 12, John says, to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And, and that suggests that if you will receive Jesus, you will be a child of God. And if you receive Jesus, you receive the Spirit. And this changes who you are, and it changes what you're here to do. And so we would plead with you to receive Jesus this morning. We would urge you not to leave this room resisting Christ. You don't want to be one who he came to his own and his own received him not. You don't want to be in that category. It doesn't end well for those people. You want to be among those who even if you fail, you can be restored. You can be brought back. Peter, because of what the Lord Jesus says to Peter, he has dignity again. He has standing among the other followers of Jesus again, all of which had been shattered. There's nobody like Jesus. And we want you to know him. And we want you to experience the forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 23. Jesus says to his followers, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, you need to know that we're saying to you, you are accountable for your sins before God. They are not forgiven. And the only way for them to be forgiven is for you to receive Jesus. That's the only way. And that's the truth. So we would plead with you to receive the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of John is magnificent. I, 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 I think it's fair for me to say we cannot study this book too much. We cannot think too deeply about it. We will not come to the end of experiencing its wonders. So I would urge you to abide in Christ as you abide in the words of this book. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus. We are 
astonished and overwhelmed that people as bad as us, people so bad that the death of the Son of God was required to accomplish our redemption. Lord, you showed such love for people as bad as we are. Love that sent the Son of God to die in our place. Lord, would you make those twin humbling and affirming realities, would you make that so central, such a core of who we are and how we think about ourselves? And would you simultaneously use it to make us people who are humble and loving and forgiving and also people who are confident and bold. Lord, would you do your work through the gospel, we pray. In Christ's name and by the Spirit, amen.